0: Visit plannedparenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We are the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great Wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, 25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate right with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: Yeah, like, yeah, is maybe. it just me or is a single banana usually too much banana?
3: It's true. It's generally true. There's just, there's only so much banana one usually wants in one sitting.
4: I feel like bananas are, like, ideally sized. <laughs> Love a good oh, banana. oh, this is the patriarchy. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Jane Costen and Dara Lind. Uh, we got a great, great white paper for you here. Uh, but but first, we, we want to talk about some escalating uh, conflicts between the Trump administration and Congress, but then also between sort of political appointees and career staff in the administration of the, the government, because these are these are related, but to an extent distinct uh, sorts of sorts of topics Um, you know one of them right so like generic interbranch conflict i think you see like house democrats with like a lot of people to testify Uh, many white house aides are declining to testify there was there may or
2: may not be a broad uh mandate out to resist you know congressional demands for documents and that kind of thing yes
4: there was a huge um twitter firestorm over the way the New York Times characterized uh, Hope Hicks, who has received a subpoena and either should comply with the subpoena or defy it. But that's an example of sort of like I don't know. I mean, this is going to end up in court, right? That the Trump administration has put forward an aggressive legal theory, right. which holds that White House staff in general cannot be compelled to testify before Congress. Um, which is interesting, and I and I kind of think they will probably lose. Yeah, but they, so this is one of those things where, in order for them to
2: actually have it tested in court, uh, Congress actually has to push contempt citations. If they attempt to quash the subpoena, that's one thing. But if they just refuse to comply, it doesn't automatically get punted to the courts. So this is going to be another tactical question for House Democrats. Like, As a corollary to the big impeachment question, like. Do you and in which cases do you actually try to hold members of the Trump administration or former members of the Trump administration in contempt of Congress? Because I think
3: one of the things about it is I just keep backing up to being like, okay, in general, if you are served with a subpoena in life to appear in court for a reason and then you say I would rather not appear in court when I have been subpoenaed, that will typically – Go poorly for you.
2: This is why, like contempt of court and contempt of Congress, really right. are different things. Right. Like Congress generally does not like having the sergeant at arms of the House of Representatives march out to LA or wherever Hope Hicks is living these days and like frog march her onto a plane so that she can appear before the House of Representatives. That is something that generally House leadership has decided. Like there are easier ways to go about getting the information that they want.
4: Although, I mean, to be fair, I mean this is also a question where you know normal person reactions and fancy person reactions yes. even in the legal context can be different like once upon a time a former landlord of mine and the building management company that the landlord had hired to manage the house i was renting found themselves in a civil legal dispute and I had no stake in this dispute, but I was centrally involved because it was a question of like where my rent money had gone, right? And so this litigation wound up producing various requests to me for documents. And when initially I got some random email, like I think I just blew it off because who knows, like you get a lot of email. But then eventually I got, I don't know if it was a summons or a subpoena or just a really Sternly worded letter on good <laughs> letterheading. Right. But y- yeah. you know what I mean? But it was, it was one of these situations where I, a young, uh, uh, at the time relatively broke journalist, felt sufficiently intimidated by the seeming legitimacy and legalness of this that I took the time to, like, rummage through, find this documentation, hand it over to whomever it was that was asking for it, said that, like, yes, I was available to come in for a deposition, like, blah, 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 blah. Now, if I had been, I don't know, living in Oregon and was also, like, a multimillionaire and also, like, really didn't want to hand over this documents right. and had a lawyer on retainer, who knows? Like, I could have fought this and maybe could have made it, like, not worth, the relevant people's while to pursue it, right? And, and so th- that's always a sort of thing in the legal system, right? There's like, what does the law require of you if you respond affirmatively to every official sounding request? And what does the law actually, actually require of you if you are willing to fight everything every step of the way, right? right? right. And, and a lot
2: of this can be reduced to like, are you, the, are you a person of sufficient wealth that you have lawyers on hand because there is an entire profession that is dedicated to if you're interested in slowing things down, we can slow things down for you. And the people on the other side of it, the people doing the requesting have grown to kind of price that into their calculations, right? Like, so that most of the time when they're sending out these requests, they're assuming if you really cared about this,
4: you'd have a lawyer. Right. And so this is essentially like the the Hope Hicks question, right? Is if she says, okay, I am going to fight this, right? And I am willing to, you know, retain counsel, whatever is involved, then it's like Congress, like, well, what are you willing to do to fight back, right? Like, you could, I guess, send some member of the Sergeant arm staff try to slap you in, in irons. You could probably, I mean, if she's in California, in fact, you could probably try to get some local person to 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 help you out with that. Oh, you I don't could, actually you, know the you, status you, of You this, could have a court battle. It would
2: be hilarious if Sanctuary State California ended up doing the bidding of the House of Representatives in this regard.
4: Right. <laughs> but so, like, what wound up happening with Attorney General Barr, right, was, like, he was not complying with congressional requests. There was talk of doing a contempt of Congress vote. Right. Then there was a negotiated climb down yes. where he coughed up some kind of other other thing. And so it's a... I don't know, like it's a tactical battle, right? I right. mean, in like, a, in like a legal realist sense, there's like, you don't really, really have to do what Congress wants. Um, the extent to which you have to do what Congress wants has to do with how much you want Congress to like you and how much of a pain in the ass you're, you're kind of willing to go through. I think a separate thing is what has now happened with the tax returns, right? Because what happened there was that Congress made a request of the IRS or specifically the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee invoking authority that is very clearly written to the statute, which says not that the president's tax returns need to be publicized if Congress asks for them, but that specifically the chair of the tax writing committee can request any person's tax returns to be shared with the committee, right? And I would say there was a fair amount of legal ambiguity surrounding the question of what the committee can do with those tax returns, like can they be publicized? I think it's the kind of thing you would expect lawyers to fight about, right? That like both sides can hire somebody smart and well-qualified, have an argument about it. The basic ability to make the request It just seems completely indisputable to me. And the more you learn about the historical context, which was at that time, the president was allowed to just like phone up and get anybody's tax return. So they passed a law saying the congressional committees could could also do that. And – the IRS, you know, <laughs> maintains lawyers on its staff. obviously, you would expect the IRS to get into legal fights all the time right uh, right. and and the lawyers wrote a memo and they were like, yeah, you know, if Congress wants to see tax returns, we have to hand them over. And yet they have not done that right. right. Donald Trump broke with many decades of precedent and put a real political appointee in charge of the IRS, not a like tax enforcement professional, but like a Republican Party donor guy who's also a tax attorney, um, the treasury secretary is a political appointee as of and they are just saying they're not going to do this, right? And that's not a question of – like Steve Mnuchin was not subpoenaed right. by anyone to do anything, right? Like Congress asked the government, right? Like the the, the state – to perform a function that it is legally obligated to perform according to its own attorneys. And the political bosses have just told it not to. And that's, a, I think, like a qualitatively different kind of thing from like I personally have hired an attorney to say that I personally don't need to do this thing. Like the attorneys for the IRS are saying they do need to do this thing. Right. And yet they're not doing
2: it. Right. And this is where the interbranch conflict gets into the political civil service conflict, which is something that, you know, we've kind of – we've discussed on and off in various contexts in this podcast, but um, you know, I think was actually something that was very live as a concern in 2016. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I remember Ezra Klein uh, basically assigning me a piece in the summer of 2016. Like, we know that Donald Trump is a very vindictive person. What would happen if you put a vindictive person in charge of the government? And I talked to a bunch of like people who have thought a lot about the the structure of government and the internal cultures and the civil service and kind of came away with it going, in order for things to actually happen with the force of the federal government. You have to have at at a certain level people other than the people the president has personally appointed doing those actions. And the civil service has very strong incentives not to break the law. Uh, And so for that reason, there's a substantially, you know, I concluded that there was a substantially muted risk of like the president using the DOJ to go after his political opponents, etc. because at a certain point you were actually going to have to have civil servant attorneys being willing to do things that they found were illegitimate. Now, what I wasn't thinking about is the kind of way that things can break down from the top down, right? The order going out to to the you know, the peons are like the people down the org chart to do a thing. What I hadn't thought about was the kind of advisory function of the bottom up, right? It is ultimately the decision of IRS leadership as to whether to turn over the president's tax returns. In theory, some attorney in the like OGC could leak them. But that's like that's no different from anybody else leaking them. It's still a leak. So the advisory function of we are going to write a memo telling you that you ought to do this. Yeah, that's something that in theory the politicals can ignore. And I think that that's something that I wasn't really thinking about as much. But it's still wild that we as the public know about this so recently after it happened mm-hmm. that like somebody felt the need to say, hey, by the way, we over here in the office of general counsel decide like ruled that it they really should be doing this and they're ignoring us.
3: Yeah, I think that on first blush, this issue seems relatively Like it's of interest, but I don't I wasn't sure just how telling it was about Uh how we're viewing how the government views its own power and how different branches are viewing government power more broadly. There's been kind of the argument of like, well, what if a Democratic president did this Uh or what if we did this in a different context? But this context itself is so unique to this particular president and this particular issue, because, you know, I just keep thinking with the tax returns issue, do you remember that there was that one time where Trump said like, oh, after the audit is over, I'll release my tax returns? And then that just disappeared. Into no,
4: the they ether? still maintain that that's the issue.
2: But you could, yes. Kellyanne and then,
4: Conway said a couple weeks ago that, that there was an audit. Yeah,
2: I feel like there is a straightforward answer to this, which is yeah. to just subpoena right. the head of the IRS, have them testify under oath as to in closed session, if they must, as to whether the president is under audit or not. But like, I don't know, maybe that's already been mooted and people have figured out that whoever would be available to speak to Congress would be able to say that they're not going to interfere in individual cases or something like that. But
3: I feel like this discussion is in some ways tangential and the offshoot of the actual issue of discussion, which is how this particular administration views its own power and the responsibilities and purviews of its own power. Right. Right. Because the the
2: same like no legitimate legislative purpose that they're using on the tax returns is also what they're using on the congressional investigation into security clearances. Right.
3: Exactly. (laughs) Which I, you know, perhaps... I'm the the last person to be thinking about Rob Porter and security clearances and yes. you know by the way Rob Porter if you're listening I haven't forgotten about you okay. but like the but this <laughs> overall discussion about security clearances and how Jared the Jared's Kushner of the world received one or how th- the tax returns issue. Because I think that there's been a lot of conservatism in looking at a bunch of polling about like the Mueller investigation and how America wants like Democrats to move on. But one that's based on how one reads these polling questions, but also this idea that like this is not just about the Russia investigation, it's not just about tax returns, it's not just about security clearances, it is about how this administration perceives its own use of power, which is something conservatives were very visible on You know, under the Obama administration when they talked about fast and furious and slow walking and, you know, those particular issues that were questioned, that were tangentially offshoots of the question of government power and the role of the state and the interplay between the administration and the state. And that's what we're seeing again. It's just that everyone switched sides. Apparently. Well, but, yeah, I
2: mean, it's something I kind of want to clarify a little bit because I didn't really properly understand this until uh, we were. I was preparing for this episode, is that on the face of it, the argument that the White House is using that like there is no quote unquote legitimate legislative purpose, like if you take those words at face value, that sounds correct, right? Like, obviously, Congress is not going to pass a bill that the president, you know, like that the president's tax returns show X, Y and Z and therefore, you know, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. Like, that's not what's going to happen. But if you actually look at the precedent, the courts have determined legitimate legislative purpose to encompass a lot of the oversight function like it is considered a legitimate legislative purpose to you know make sure that the local state and federal governments are like functioning properly and non corruptly and you know that there is even if you are not contemplating specific legislation that making sure that the government is working as Legally, as, as it is legally obligated to work, is it is a thing that comes under that umbrella. So, like, this is a case where, jurisprudentially, the administration is making a kind of you know semantically strict constructionist argument that ignores decades of precedent. Right.
4: Well, I mean, it's a it's a political argument, right? right? Which is that like, okay, this isn't really about like doing bills that will solve the big problems. Legally speaking, it's like a legitimate legislative function to 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 poke around. But the th- the thing. I think is different here, right, is, you know, whenever you have a president and an opposition Congress, there is some tussle, right, around essentially scandal mongering, right? The Congress wants to do some oversight, uh, which is to say they want to look into something that the media has already agreed is a scandal, right? Because that's the way it goes, right? Every once in a while, the media agrees to treat a given controversy as a scandal right? A scandal is bad for the president. So any news articles that are on the subject of that scandal are bad for the president. And therefore, as Congress, you want to generate news stories that are about that thing. And this is what Republicans did with the Hillary email server process, right? Is like nobody ever specifically mounted an argument that like this was important or whatever, but it was definitely a scandal. So then every time there was a new development in the scandal, there was a story, new development in the scandal. And that's the same point at the end of the day with the White House security clearances, right? Like this was treated as a scandal. Rob Porter stepped down in part over it. Like there there is a scandal in the works. Democrats would like there to be more news around this scandal. So they want to get more facts, more paperwork, exactly what happened. What did John Kelly say? What did Jared Kushner say, right? Like beat by beat, blah, 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 blah. And you always have – A fight about that. What I think is more unique here is not the relationship of the White House staff to Congress, but the relationship of the White House staff to the government. Yes, right. That there's a. I'm I'm not a constitutional uh, lawyer, but in practice, like there's a difference between the president's team, which is like a few hundred people, and the state. Yes. Right, which is the thousands of branch. people, right, the the executive branch of government, which is like its own thing. And right. like the president just doesn't tell like the, I don't know, like some NIH grant writing guy in Bethesda, right, or like one person from the DEA field office in Boise, like what to do, right? They are not on the president's staff. You don't just phone them up, Right. And then it is also true, of course, like the president is the chief executive of the United States. His decisions have influence on what all of these people do, but they have autonomy in their spheres, right? And what the Trump administration is doing with this IRS thing and potentially in other areas, like I think there's some interesting questions about what's going on in antitrust enforcement, right, where it's – they are attempting to – make everything reflect Donald Trump's personal will. And of course, it doesn't still. It's still a big organization, right? But they are pushing against those boundaries to say that the IRS staff cannot comply with its own judgment of its legal obligations, that they have to comply with Donald Trump's political strategy. And that's very different from saying that, like, special assistant to the president, Hope Hicks, needs to comply with Donald Trump's political strategy. Because, like, the idea of the IRS or the DEA field office in Chicago or the NIH in Bethesda is that these are, like, enduring entities that persist through time and across different administrations.
2: Yeah. anti is actually a really good example because it's where the... Kind of bottom-up advisory function and the top-down enforcement function right. are there's a, a boundary there because the way that in, that antitrust works, like in theory, DOJ antitrust could file the result of an investigation saying yes, there are severe there are antitrust concerns with this proposed merger, and then decline to prosecute, right? Um, or you know, decline decline to sue rather. So it, it, it's theoretically like that would be a legible and legally defensible outcome it would also in this particular case raise questions about why was the declination made right. um that does ultimately require the same some of the same people who were doing the investigation to then be like you know, have their names on the memo saying we're not going to prosecute or alternatively, if they were saying that there weren't antitrust concerns and then went into court anyway to like be the people in the courtroom. So there is some of the like at the end of the day, the civil servants have to be standing up and doing the bidding of the president. And if they are that concerned, they can leave, which gets us to, I think, a break. And then I want to talk about what's going on at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services.
4: Okay, so Dara, you can have to remind us again.
2: Yeah. What is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services? So when the Department of Homeland Security was created in the wake of 9-11, the Immigration and Naturalization Service was split into three different immigration agencies. Two of them were enforcement agencies. That's CBP, Customs and Border Protection, and ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, and the split between those is border versus interior, quote unquote. Um, and then there was the... Processing of applications for legal immigration, uh, including you know everything from temporary visas to green cards to citizenship, and you know included in that is refugee and asylum,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: and that is all under USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. So, like in theory, it is the non-enforcement arm. Mm-hmm. Um, in practice, the it is you know.
4: It, Asylum well, but, exists very much at the boundary.
2: Yeah, asylum of is, is at the boundary. Legal for immigration
4: sure. and enforcement. Right.
2: And there's also like if you're being denied a visa, or you know, if you're being denied an extension of your visa and you're here in the United States, uh, what constitutes, you know, like, yes, in theory, you're not you don't have ICE showing up at your door the day that you overstay your visa, but it's still like, you know, it still feels like the Blunt arm the the blunt hand of the law. But rather the idea, than like but the idea was something you. like
4: to create like a like a friendly agency. Yeah. Well, and, and, then, also, and then some mean agency. Yeah, so rather and- than having a a blended attitude yes there there definitely was an
2: institutional culture concern and i think there was also frankly a uh pocketbook concern right Uh because uscis uh is a fee-funded agency and has been like congress doesn't really bother to appropriate funds because it's on the backs of the immigrants who are filing the applications indeed it's indeed (laughs) whereas uh cbp and ice have continued to see more and more and more budget from congress over the years uh and and Something I think it's important to note is that the workforce of USCIS is much bigger than the workforces of the other two agencies. So it is fair to call it the biggest immigration agency in government. Uh, On Friday evening, Donald Trump... Uh, successfully requested the resignation. I think is the way to put this mm-hmm. of the director of USCIS, who had been appointed, who had been you know appointed and confirmed pretty early in the Trump administration. Was when he was confirmed, regarded as like one of the biggest immigration hawks in Trump's government. Uh, immigration advocacy groups were very concerned about him. His you know he's done a lot to both on kind of executing the Trump administration's agenda on some of this asylum stuff. Uh, You know, we've discussed the remain in Mexico policy on this podcast, stuff like, you know, DACA and the end of TPS were also things he had to sign off on and, you know, help enforce, of course. And also doing these procedural things that have made it much harder to get a visa application approved quickly. You know, there are a lot more requests for evidence if it's much easier to deny something if there isn't sufficient evidence. There's, yeah, we a, probably should
4: do a whole show sometime. We Actually, really, there's been, there's been a sort of undercover constriction of legal the legal immigration right. process right. that that he's overseen.
2: Right. And it's always difficult to tell because it's a fee-funded agency how much of this is a resource crunch and how much of this is a deliberate decision. But you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that has kind of alarmed immigration lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he has not how he had not, however, done everything that Stephen Miller wanted. There had been reports that, that Miller wanted in addition to getting rid of the old old head of DHS, Christian Nielsen, that he wanted Francis Cisna, who's the now ex-head of USCIS, and the DHS General Counsel out because they weren't doing enough, he thought, to kind of crack down on asylum seekers. They weren't writing regulations quickly enough. Uh, Because what this government needs is more regulations,
3: say conservatives.
4: I mean, rewriting (laughs) of the rules. (laughs) Yeah, this is uh,
2: the the particular things he's uh, the particular things that Miller was concerned about, uh, only one of which was relevant to USCIS. But like in both those cases were kind of lacunae that past administrations had. not So do we we have a new
4: USCIS um,
2: head? So we don't yet. Uh, The the word on the street and by the street, I mean, the Washington Post is that Trump has been trying to find a place for Ken Cuccinelli, the former attorney general of Virginia, uh, and that he has decided that this would be a good place to put him. I mean, there are concerns about this in terms of Mitch McConnell has like straight up said back when Trump was apparently mooting Cuccinelli for head of all of DHS, like McConnell told the press that he had uh, made his Lack of enthusiasm for Cuccinelli, clear. Mitch McConnell has every reason to hate Ken Cuccinelli because Ken Cuccinelli's current job is running a PAC that inter alia primaries incumbent Republican senators. Um, So there's no love lost there. And so it's not at all clear whether Mitch McConnell like Congress, you know, the, the Republican Senate has Recently, gotten Trump to walk back like two Fed nominees. Mm -hmm. So, in theory, if they really wanted to, they could push back a formal Cuccinelli nomination. Cuccinelli probably can't get appointed acting head without that, uh, without actually getting confirmed because he's not like from the agency. You'd have to do this weird thing where you'd be like naming him to some kind of deputy role and then making him acting. So like the question of whether Ken Cuccinelli will be the head of USCIS is separate from the question of what happens now that the former head is out. And even though CISNA had a reputation for being an immigration hawk, over the last few months in particular, as it's become clear that he was kind of standing up to Miller on some of this stuff, in some cases, like there's one meeting that got reported from last year where Miller was essentially impugning the Professionalism of asylum officers and like right. Cisna had to shout him down. Like there's a sense that even though he was a political appointee and it agreed with the administration ideologically, that he was going to defend his people. Sure. And so getting rid of somebody who was a political but was standing up for the civil service is being seen by the civil service. Not the kind is, like, of person not a who great would sign.
4: Who would overrule the professional staff attorney exactly and decide. Exactly. And that- like
2: that was that was a lot of Miller's frustration, is that like, You know, I think that it's significant that the other person Stephen Miller is mad at is the general counsel, because general counsels are the kind of people who are going to write memos saying the law says we probably shouldn't do this, right? Right. They're very concerned with litigation risk. And obviously, any Trump immigration policy is going to carry a lot of litigation risk right Right. now. And so the people who listen to the career lawyers and go, yeah, it would probably not be a good idea for us to push the envelope on this. Getting pushed out means that you don't have, at, at very least, you have the absence of someone standing up. So there's one fewer step between the White House and the people who are actually carrying stuff
4: out on the ground. Right. But so this is just, you know, to to clarify, right, like how this all comes together, right, that like they have a situation at Treasury and the IRS where the political appointees are fully on board with sort of defiant legal attitude. And they have not had that at DHS, probably in part because the institutional culture at some of these agencies is in some ways friendlier to Trump's ideological agenda. They didn't necessarily like come in on day one with like, okay, we need to blow this up. Right. Well, also
2: because a lot of the they were appointing people in the enforcement agencies who were career people Prefer- exactly. getting getting promoted up. But, but I mean, that that's what I mean, right? So it's like- oh, when, yeah, when It's we're, also like statutory. <laughs>
4: well, okay. But like when a Republican administration came in to take over the EPA, yeah. right? Like we are going to do a good job of running this agency was like not- No. You know, like yeah. under consideration, right? It was like a strike force is going to come in, right? Like into hostile territory, blah, blah, blah. But like the mentality, you know, at DHS was that like, they, they like the Border Patrol. They like the ICE guys. Well, the... it, it
3: goes back to like the formation of DHS as something that represents if not just Republican but Trumpian priorities. Like the EPA does not. Right, Even right, the right. concept, I mean, you could make the argument and kind of right libertarians have that not, the IRS certainly does not. Sure. And so, you know, it would it makes a lot of sense to see people within DHS and kind of The how, again, like, you know, Perhaps this is on, I have so many hobby horses. I need a hobby stable for my hobby horses. But among hobbies them, it, yes, hobby's horse. But the among them is this idea, again, of like s- government power and how it's perceived from administration to administration. And so, of course, you know, if you are a Trump EPA appointee, your job is to mitigate the role of the EPA. If you're a Trump DHS employee, on the other hand, your role is to DHS as hard as you possibly right. can.
4: But don't, just Ken Kucinelli like know anything about? Immigration, like I remember Ken Cuccinelli primarily as being like the last person to hear that the underlying politics in the state of Virginia were shifting somewhat to the left. And he was attorney general. He ran as like – just like like a hard right shop there. He did like all the red state attorney general stuff, right. except it was Virginia. Um, and then he ran for governor in 2013. Uh, Obama was pretty unpopular in 2013. The Democratic nominee superficially seemed like a really weak choice uh, in, in Terry McAuliffe, who's from upstate New York rather than Virginia. Um, he lost kind of embarrassingly and then seemed to just like shuffle off into the wingnut welfare neverland. And, you know, I, I, I was just I was surprised to see him floated to make a comeback for this job. Like, who's Ken Cuccinelli? Like, So the thing
2: is that Ken Cuccinelli has, you know, like, as you just implied, he has the rhetorical politics of an immigration hawk, right? Sure. Like, he has said, like, really tough things about immigrants, right? And as state attorney general was floating all of these, like, at one point, he argued that it would be that legal immigrants shouldn't be able to recoup their wages if they were fired for not speaking english on the job like oh. these got well it's so that's it's nice. not that he doesn't have opinions okay. but there's a big that's difference something. like if you're the the kind of doing all the republican state attorney general stuff um that's a very particular you know litigation is a very particular way into an issue right sure. and a, a Especially when you're a state suing the federal government, it's rarely a matter of the ins and outs of the substantive area of law. It's usually a constitutional law question, right. like a you know balance of powers, uh, federalism questions, that those kind of like big picture things. Yeah, yeah. Nothing that I have seen has indicated that Ken Cuccinelli has a professional's understanding of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Right. Which, like, to run a several thousand, like tens of thousands of people agency, uh, you. Generally, both have to have like management experience and be able to understand the kind of ins and outs of this famously complicated piece of legislation like immigration law. It's very hard to get people trained up to do pro bono immigration law because lawyers from other areas of law come into immigration law and go, what the heck is this? this?" It's complicated. Um, So – but, if your, jo- definitely but like, if your
4: job is just to, like, rubber stamp right, Stephen Miller's memos, then you don't need a lot of subject matter expertise.
2: That's exactly the thing, right? Ah. It's a question of having that – having, like – a cipher there, as opposed uh-huh. to an actual person, means that there's going to be one fewer person in the room having opinions about. Gee, maybe the INA says we shouldn't do this. Gee, maybe the regulations on this are actually a lot less elastic than you think they are. Um, you know, we're going to need to write new regulations if we want to do this. So, yeah, not having someone who doesn't have opinions and is primarily a loyalist like does help the administration in that regard. Uh, the question is. You know, again, what happens kind of in the absence of Ken Cuccinelli, right, where you do have, in theory, civil servants who have – who do know the law, who have opinions about how the law should and shouldn't be pushed and don't have an actual person at the head of their agency saying, no, 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 you have to do things this way. We do know that Stephen Miller has been known to make, like, calls to sub-agency head-level officials and berate them for not doing things quickly enough. So, like – it's not, you know, the relationship between the White House and DHS and USCIS is kind of in flux right now. The, I think, other question here is how much does the threat of Ken Cuccinelli cause some of those same civil servants to leave, right? There's definitely a vibe at USCIS that people feel they are, especially like in the Asylum Corps, that people feel like they are under attack. And it's really hard if you're an individual working in government to justify the continued your continued service to people who appear to not like you. Like Donald Trump talks all the time about how asylum seekers are these like terrible frauds. And if you're someone who whose job it is to interview asylum seekers and adjudicate asylum applications and you're being told by the president of the United States on a daily basis that like you're a useless dupe. It's not easy to like go into work every day. And so and if I, you I have think I would that argue kind of, that that's part of the point. Right. Yeah. Like I don't I really don't like intentionalist arguments on this stuff. Um, I feel like it's much easier to point to the effects of something or the right. lack of effects. But I definitely think that's something that we either that will be illustrative. whether Like if we see it and also if we don't see it is whether we see some some of the kind of mid-level USCIS folks Turning tail and heading out because they have decided that they are no longer interested in trying to fight for themselves.
3: Yeah, it, it's interesting to see the contentiousness within just this one particular, like especially because the idea is that this conflict is over whether or not to obey the law or whether or not to obey Donald Trump, and it seems like that particular contention, which uh, the difference between um, civil servants and political appointees, like that tension of like, we are going to put forward the policies that we think best do what Donald Trump has asked of us, you know, whether or not that that is written into legislation, whether or not that's written into law. And then you have, you know, as Dara was saying, you have people saying like, I don't think that this regulation is as flexible as you think it is. I don't think like, it is interesting, and we're seeing this in other in other departments. We're seeing these the same debates being had, and I think that that really does come back to this overall debate about how does this administration perceive both its own power and its ability to get other people to do things.
4: Yeah, and also, you know, to me, I think it's important— I would draw a distinction between sort of classic like executive power type issues and what I think we're seeing, you know, Trump emblematizing a trend that's been going on for a while, which is sort of the strength of the state, right? That the United States compared to other developed countries has a relatively weak uh, permanent state, right, Um, with an important exception in the national security sphere. Right? And if you think about what a, what a strong state institutions look like, like in most European states, you should think about how the military works, right? Where you know, the president has influence over who becomes top generals and what commands they get. But it is universally understood that he's got to pick from the roster of existing top generals. Right. And that you get to be a top general by going to West Point or the Naval Academy, by graduating, by becoming a junior right. officer, by being right. promoted through a set of institutions that the professionals themselves created. And then you eventually get to a point where you've got two or three stars on your shoulders and, and the politics influences it. Right. But that like hey. you get there by coming up through the culture and the culture is self-sustaining, right. self-defining and largely autonomous in its like to day operations even though obviously the president has a lot of say over like are we going to invade iraq or not but very little say over like how do things work at this military base over here right
2: and the virtue of that is that you guarantee a certain level of buy-in both for the decisions that are being made by the top brass and even for the decisions being made by the president right like the the fact that support for the Iraq war was coded as support the troops so strongly is because the internal culture of we you know, we have selected our – like our leaders have risen from within the ranks means we have every reason to believe that they are – that they have our best interests at heart.
4: Right, And then if you compare though, you know, the United States not to Europe but like all the developed countries to, you know, um, the the developing world, you would say that we all have strong states, right? That like what happens in the government on a day-to-day basis is something that like you as a business person consulting with your attorneys can develop a predictable force forecast about what you are allowed to do or you are not allowed to do, what kinds of permits you can apply for, what you will, you know, like, like how things work, right? That like positive law is a thing that like separately we could argue about what we wish the policies were, what we wish the courts would say, but like we can also have a consensus as to like what it is, right? And a lot of other countries are not like that. It is much more heavily dependent on the whims of the moment. Right And Trump, not uniquely or single-handedly, but is pushing us more and more and more to a kind of a, a weak state of parties and courts where the question is always like, well, we're going to have to see, right? Like we're just – we're going to have to see what orders come down, what counter-litigation happens, what gets kicked up through many layers of the federal judiciary because things are going to get fought and it is really sort of – unclear like what's going to to happen. I I mentioned I mentioned antitrust because this is a Thing where the the Trump administration in its early days somewhat unexpectedly objected to a merger between AT and T and Time Warner, and there was some suggestion that this was Trump trying to punish Time Warner because he doesn't like CNN's coverage. And I defended the Trump administration from those charges. I thought there was a respectable case in antitrust law that that this was problematic. They did lose at trial, and and they and they lost. They they filed the suit. I think a lot of people. Some people were Democrats, thought Trump was doing the right thing, but they lost a trial. It was out of step with the normal doctrine. But now there's talk that they will not object to a T-Mobile Sprint merger, which is in the same industry as AT&T, but seems like a much more conventional sort of antitrust-type concerns. And the Japanese guy who owns Sprint has, like, been a big Trump ally and, like, contributed to a Trump investment fund, right? Showed up at the Trump Hotel. Yeah. Did
3: all of the standard things you do when you want to make Trump your friend. Right. And so,
4: I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with this, right? I mean, what what decisions will be made. But that's the kind of world, right? This is... uh, sort of banana republic territory, right, where decisions about this stuff are getting made not on the basis of a policy view or a legal precedent, but just kind of how does the president feel about it.
2: Right. Especially because, like, we have reports that DOJ antitrust has, like, career staff have looked at the deal and said,
4: this is not going to get approved as it's written. And especially the the consistency question, right? I mean, with AT&T Time Warner, what you would have to say to defend Trump and defend DOJ was like, yes, what they are doing here is inconsistent with the approval of the Comcast NBC merger, but a lot of people looked back at that merger and said that the – Basically, they were allowed to merge, but with a bunch of conditions attached. A lot of people have looked back on it and said the conditionality didn't work, right? That proved impossible to enforce in practice. So the institutions have changed their mind, right? And they're filing this suit. But to have strong objections to that merger and then no objection to a much more sort of conventionally problematic merger both involving cell phone companies right like it 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 like it really makes you wonder now at the end of the day we still have a court system in America right which can smack these things down but and you know I mean, and you, you can't you can't smack down a merger
2: if there's no antitrust suit being No filed. no but, but but
4: did smack down the effort to right. block ATT and and CNN right but it's still you want to live in a country where, like, not everything has to be like a huge federal case, right? To sort of get the right thing done, right? Well, at where least you don't have sometimes to. Sometimes you
2: really do need to move fast, right? Like antitrust mergers. At this point, everybody involved are the kind of people who hire lawyers, and so everybody assumes it's going to move pretty slowly. But like a lot of this immigration stuff, the administration is making the argument that simply having it tied up in court is a problem for the executive branch, and like. Whether or not you believe that the particular immigration actions the administration is taking are legal or constitutional, you can understand the argument that in theory having every immigration policy go through the courts is going to hold some stuff up that shouldn't be held up. Right.
4: And then also, you know, um, AT&T and Tom Warner at the end of the day, like they can hire their lawyers and fight their court case to get permission to do what they want. Uh, Not every business is as big Yes. As AT&T, right? Like, it is a real burden if everything has to be vindicated through the courts. But then also, like, you know, the the courts are independent of the executive branch, but they're not, like, unrelated to it, right? I mean, the president is picking these people. Right, There are strong partisan signals about what you're supposed to do. And so at the end of the day, I mean, like, the, the, the judiciary is an important backstop to, like, safeguard the rule of law. But you don't want – the way law works in practice to be that the executive branch is constantly breaking the law and then people are going to court and the courts are being like, no, 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 you, you got to hold back, right? Like you, you want them to like do the right thing in the first place.
3: Right, right. That to to go by the written regulations the and rules and not go to court because they think the written regulations and rules are bad regulations and rules. And I think that that really goes though um a kind of on a side point about how this administration has been emphasizing the role of courts and judges kind of with the assumption that well, we're just simply not going to go with the written regulations and rules because those regulations may have been written by Democrats and Democrats are bad people. But ergo, we must go to the courts, which is leading to its own challenges in which you know, several judicial nominees um, recently, Senator Josh Hawley has been challenging them. And one, one of the issues is because one of the Trump judicial nominees defended the city of East Lansing in, in an LGBT related case that had to do with, you know, religious freedom in some way but he was acting as the defense attorney for the city and Hawley has accused him of anti-catholic prejudice because of these briefings written on the subject that again he was acting in defense of a client the mm-hmm. city of east of east lansing and it's interesting to see that the political uh, priorities are being put forth even in these how judges are getting nominated with the assumption that like judges should be nominated with the express argument that they will overturn these regulations or they will act in on the behest of the Trump administration?
2: Uh- I have said this on the podcast before, but I'm going to say it again because it's important. We were taught in civics class that the legislative branch writes the laws, the executive branch enforces the laws, and the judicial branch interprets the laws. The We currently have a homeostasis where the executive branch writes policy, the judicial pr- branch approves or strikes yeah. down that policy, and the legislative branch is responsible for determining who gets to sit on the bench.
4: Right. right. And with that, let's take a break. Let's do a research paper.
5: Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought.
4: The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun.
5: This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to Hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's hydro com code WEEDS, to save up to $400.
1: Hydro.com,
5: code WEEDS.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month. Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate right with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: So uh, this week's research paper, is, we're getting into the economic history of the Civil War. It's uh, The title is Wealth, Slave Ownership, and Fighting for the Confederacy, an Empirical Study of the American Civil War. It's f- written by Andrew B. Hall Connor Huff and Shiro Kuruwaki. American Political Science Review, shout out. So it is not surprising to anyone who has listened to this podcast that like various of us have interest in the both the kind of broader Civil War questions and the like material interests of slave owners in particular. And the question of who served in the Confederate Army is like has been ongoing among historians because there is this narrative that it was a quote-unquote rich man-war, poor man's fight, that like, yes, the slave-owning interests were the ones who got the South into the war, but the people who were actually on the ground fighting and dying were poorer people who couldn't evade the draft. Uh, There's also an argument that because, you know it was the war was over the future of slavery and the south understood that before the union did uh, that there were more in, there was more interest among slave owners in like fighting for that so this study uses n- some newly digitized records uh, and it's actually like a super cool methodology we have an ungated paper I'll, link i'll put it in show notes it's actually a really clear white paper Props to the authors for this, but they found they have a digitized version of the 1850 census and they link the records in there to records of the 1850 slave register and the Confederate army rolls and find that in general, households sent more soldiers if they owned more slaves. Mm-hmm. And like The difference between not owning any slaves and owning a few slaves is like 1.7 people per household versus two-plus soldiers per mm-hmm. household. And then they look in a kind of quasi-experimental way in what's called the Georgia Land Lottery or the Cherokee Land Lottery, because in the early 1830s, when they kicked the Cherokee off land in Georgia, there was a fully randomized way to determine who got those parcels of land. So you have this like natural experiment where some people who were poor got land and some people who were poor didn't get land. And they found that the winners of that lottery were more likely to fight in the more likely to own slaves and more likely to fight for the Confederacy, even in the early days when it wasn't as clear that like the war was going to drag on for a Mm -hmm. while. So the kind of concerns of, oh, is it worth it to me to like abandon my farm weren't as live. So it's pretty strong empirical evidence that even though the rich had more ways to evade, especially when conscription came into effect, that the South understood this at the time as slave owners fighting to protect their material interests. Right, as the Civil War was fought on the
3: issue of slavery. Um, But I I also found it interesting, just as a side note in the paper, the degree to which you know, Confederate soldiers either joining and then immediately abandoning, or running away from conscription with the assistance of like state level officials, including the state governor of Georgia at the time. Basic, you know, who the con- the Confederate government was so annoyed at the fact that they would just they were not helping at all with consri- conscription, and the attempting to evade conscription was both an effort for the poor and the rich alike, but. I really think this paper is particularly fascinating because I think that they they look at this in both ways. They look at why wealthy landowners would be more motivated to fight and why they might also be less motivated to fight. Mm-hmm. They offer kind of an alternative explanation because, and they start at the top of the paper, Th- this argument has been going on, on bo- you know in both ways. The idea of like, it was a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. It just kind of one of the you know, for people who have studied the Civil War in depth, that's just kind of an ongoing trope. But that, but then this paper provides ample evidence that that wasn't entirely true. And then that, like, if you had the material interest of slavery and even not necessarily the personal interest and in I want to maintain my slaves, but the idea that, you know, I have slaves, I am good, slavery is good, and I will fight, in, in, you know, the intrinsic linking of the South, the Confederacy, and slavery— you know, the idea that you are not fighting for hearth and home, you're fighting for hearth and home and slaves who are a part of your perspective of what that home
4: is. I do wonder, though, as a possible alternative explanation of this, to what extent richer people <laughs> are just generally exhibit more like pro-social behaviors, right? Because they feel uh, generally rosy and validated by society and social institutions and are thus more likely to volunteer for things in general. Like we talked about foreclosure and distress and voting in Florida on a recent episode. Uh, I see, you know, when we do like school fundraiser stuff, right? Like obviously the rich parents are more likely to make monetary contributions to things, but like kind of also more likely to show up to staff big sale shifts and and things like that, right? And like, to be clear, I'm not trying to put this out as like rich people are better because as you can see, volunteering to fight for the Confederacy is actually very
1: bad, yes, is a
4: bad thing to do, right, but, either it, but, right. it, but it's it like it's a fairly a
1: reasonable
2: same... conclusion to draw that like if institution is if the institution isn't interested in my well-being,
4: why should I be interested in the institution's right. well-being I, exactly. but so I would just be interested to know to what extent in general, like wealthy landowners are just like more conformist, more likely to say yes to requests from authority figures, like less likely to feel um grumpy about society and things that you want them to do, like in this particular case, like the war was also narrowly in the financial self-interests, but it's like the structure of society is like good for rich people and you would expect them to feel good about it and to then be eager to participate in things.
3: One thing I would want to note is that levels of participation, I would be interested to see more, more information about how wealth impacted that About how you know if you are the scion of a wealthy landowning family and you go fight for the Confederacy, what do you go fight as? Because you know, are you are not probably you are not coming into this as like guy who has to go fight the Second Battle of Bull Run in the front where terrible things happen.
2: You know, I I would be interested to see how that might play in as well. Yeah, although the the authors say that they do kind of address that point, at least, by looking at 1861, because that's where you were less... Anybody who signed up for the confed- to fight for the Confederacy in 1861 was less likely to be worried about dying. Because that's true. They all we, you, thought you it would was have been going to be a fast fight. Yes, people. Um, people. But as, as to far watch as the pro sociality of the rich is concerned, like the flippant way to address this is to be like, I don't know, Matt. Do we think that the rich are particularly likely to sign up for the U.S. Army and the armed forces right now? Like, well, the poor are unlikely to. That's know. a very good point. Um, but I think the other thing to note here is that the authors point out that just as most Americans aren't in the top 10 percent of the wealth distribution, but they expect that they or their kids will someday be in the top 10 percent of the wealth distribution, that like even Southerners who did not own slaves expected to own slaves in the future. The fact remains that that did not influence their participation. So like I'm not actually sure if that cuts – I mean, or it, it may have influenced their participation, but it still – it didn't ri- raise their participation to levels of people who actually owned slaves at the time. I don't know which way that cuts. Like, I my gut would be that it indicates that even people for whom the system is not currently working for them believe that the system is working for them in the long run. Right. And therefore, like, the pro-socialness would be pretty evenly distributed. I guess you could also say that, like – the big difference between expecting to own slaves in the future and owning slaves now is that do you believe the system is working for you right now? But like, I think it's true that not everybody who own, who did not own slaves was looking at the system and going, gee, the slave regime does not work for me. Most of them were going, oh, ultimately, this is going to be good for me. But at the moment, I better stay home and tend so the farm. So here's
4: my research assignment for the future. We know that eventually the union imposes conscription. Right, and that when the union imposes conscription, it allows wealthy people to pay their way out of conscription, and that this becomes a right. a big subject of political controversy in the north.
2: Draft riots, et right Draft yes. riots,
4: but the war went on for several years before conscription came in. Right, and so you should be able to do a parallel survey, right, of the economic fortunes of northerners and how many volunteers their households sent, right? And so it would be interesting to, to know, right? So the, the opportunity cost of military service in the north is much higher. Uh, if you're from a wealthy family, right? Because the military pay scale is not that generous. Uh, but also your, you know, the same pro-social implications, you know, hold there as well, right? You're saying, okay, well, we're fighting to save the union, right? And so who has a stake in the union? Who who feels warm and fuzzy about the union? You would expect that to be people who are more prosperous, right? If you're like, uh, or maybe not, right? I feel like the racial politics of this are also extremely
2: fraught, right? Because you have this very concerted, Frederick Douglass-led, effort for free Blacks in the North to show that they had a stake in American citizenship by going sure. to fight. but, but okay, obviously, but so they're they, going to be but, less prosperous. But, but,
4: but, but, but right. But so they they have that on the census form, too, though, right? You can look at white sure. Northerners, right, in the 1850 yeah. census, their volunteer proclivity and, like, see see how it holds, right? Is there similar class skew to what you saw in the South? Does it go in the other direction where poor people, like, could use the work? Um, you know, what, what what was going on?
3: I don't know. All I know is slavery was a trash institution,
4: and oh, people shouldn't have fought a so war So you're, you're against slavery. I am opposed. Huh. All right. but, yes, we whereas, should do an episode. <laughs> 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 Broderick Khan. Um, no, that's uh, that's 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 research for tomorrow, or perhaps it's already been done. Uh, send me an email if you've already done this paper, or
2: put it in the Weeds Facebook group. The Weeds Facebook group could use more white papers.
4: Sure, we need them all. Um, okay, and with that, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, as always, to our producer Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will return on Friday.